Welcome to Hot Take, the podcast where we explore the climate crisis and all the ways we're talking and not talking about it. I'm Amy Westervelt. And I'm Mary Anise Hegler. And I'm so glad to be back with you in earnest. Yes, I'm so glad to be back on the air or whatever we're calling the pod waves. I know. It's been a minute. Yeah. Damn near a year, and a lot has happened in that time. It really has. But we wanted to take this episode to welcome back our old listeners and welcome in our new listeners by talking about the thing that really drives this podcast and to a huge degree, our friendship, Rage Against the Fossil Fuel Machine. Yep. One of the biggest reasons people stay out of the climate fight is because they're beset with all this guilt because the fucking oil companies have framed them for their own ecocide. That's genocide on a planetary <laughs> level for those who don't know. Yeah, it's on some whoever smelt it, dealt it type shit. Right, but really it's whoever denied it, supplied it. Very mature. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and it's time to reframe this shit. So without any further ado, I think it's time. It's time to talk about climate. This holiday season, get a gift for yourself, too, and keep it simple. I gave myself the gift of a better, more convenient laundry experience. I know, I know, laundry doesn't sound like a gift, but honestly, EarthBreeze just makes it so much easier. Think about how you actually do laundry. You have to work out how much detergent to pour, lift that big plastic jug, hope the goo doesn't get everywhere. It's annoying. But EarthBreeze Eco Sheets look like nothing I've ever seen in the detergent aisle. It's almost, it's like a dryer sheet kind of, but it's the detergent and you throw it in and then that's it. There's no measuring, no nothing. It works in hot and cold. It's also dermatologist tested, hypoallergenic, and free of bleach and dyes. And it fights everyday stains and odors. You get a powerful clean, but you don't have to deal with all that packaging. Right now, my listeners can get started with Earth Breeze and save 40%, Go to earthbreeze.com slash drilled. That's E-A-R-T-H-B-R-E-E-Z-E dot com slash drilled for 40% off your subscription earthbreeze.com slash drilled. We're back! And it's Earth Day. <laughs> you know, you would think for us as, as climate folks that this would be our happiest day of the year, like our favorite day of the year, but I actually kind of hate it. I do, too. I have to say, I start to dread it as soon as April 1st hits, which is terrible. It's so bad <laughs> saying that, but it's true. Yeah, it's like I, a few years ago, someone asked me to write an essay about like my childhood memories of Earth Day, and I was like completely taken aback. I did not know people had childhood memories of Earth Day. I definitely don't. I mean, if I do, they've been buried by like adult memories of my inbox being pelted by a thousand press releases every Earth Day. Oh God! For like yes, the the <laughs> yeah, for like you know, I don't know, Amazon's Earth Day special <laughs> or whatever. I know, I know. I mean, it's kind of nice to get some sales out of it every once in a while, but it really has just turned into this like 
commercialized sort of thing. But it, actually, the way I think about Earth Day is that it's very white and very hippie. Earth Day is part of the reason it took me so long to get involved in in the climate movement because I would go to these like environmental marches, Earth Day marches, and it just looked like, you know, a lot of people who had no problems in the world, and I could not relate. Mary, did it look like a fish concert? <laughs> it, it did. It looked like a fish concert. It looked like if I turned my back for two seconds, it would have turned into some sort of like mosh pit type of situation. And it was just like, okay, th- it doesn't seem like we're here to fight for anything. It looks like we're here to like, I don't know, have a play date. And so I just, I never got into it. Yeah. Um, yeah. It was just like a lot of people who loved whales and hated showers. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, which is a big shame because the actual roots of Earth Day are kind of the opposite of that. It's, you know, people who were inspired by the civil rights movement and who were really pissed off at oil companies, especially in the wake of this big 1969 oil spill in Santa Barbara, which at the time was right. the biggest oil spill. Unfortunately, we've outpaced it since then. <laughs> you know? A couple so... of times, actually, which we'll get into later in this episode. But yeah, I, I I honestly, it was a big turning point for me when I learned that uh, Earth Day was inspired by the civil rights movement. So it was basically a member of Congress got super pissed that there was this huge oil spill off the coast of California. And he organized this, uh, something like the Freedom Schools in Mississippi to teach people about, you know, the environment and the dangers of oil. And it's like, oh, that is something I could absolutely get into. And I hate that it took me that long in my life to figure that out. But at the same time, kind of fuck Earth Day. Yeah. It's just, it's a weird day. It's like cleaning your house one day a year. It's true. But I feel like that's what we're here to do today a little bit is reclaim Earth Day, take it back to its roots and make it about fucking with oil companies. My favorite thing. So since we've been doing this podcast, um, just in two years, we have seen the climate conversation change dramatically. And one of my favorite changes is that it seems like people are starting to become more and more aware that the fossil fuel industry and the big oil companies like BP and Shell and Chevron, they're more than just gas stations. (laughs) These are huge conglomerate companies. And I want to start today by talking about my favorite, my climate bay, BP. <laughs> if you know, like, even a little bit about me, you know that I hate BP. I mean, I'm recording from here in New Orleans that has, like, a very deep hatred of BP for yep. very specific reasons. Uh, that started 12 years ago on April 20th when BP uh, had the largest oil spill in American history. Um, it killed 11 workers and sent oil spewing into the Gulf of Mexico for 87 days. That was estimates, which are all conservative, of 4 million barrels of oil from BP's Macondo well. There was damage all over the Gulf Coast from Florida to Texas to Mexico, killed a shit ton of birds, mad fish, and put a whole lot of people out of work and gave a lot of people cancer. They're still getting cancer to this day. It also kind of gave birth to my favorite hobby, um, which I call green trolling, open to other names, is basically cyberbullying fossil fuel companies in public. At the time, there was way more of it happening in the forms of like T-shirts, because Twitter wasn't that big, but there definitely definitely was some tr- Twitter trolling going on of BP, and it was 
amazing. <laughs> I still want to find out who was behind some of those accounts. And, you know, even more than the actual oil, there was the cover-up where they put out this chemical dispersant to get rid of the oil. They literally tried to stop the oil gushing out by blasting trash into the well. <laughs> do you remember that? I do. I know I you do. do. <laughs> oh man. It was there were so there were so many crazy things around that around that spill in particular. All of which is why instead of Earth Day, what do we celebrate at Hot Take, Mary? Fuck BP Day. That's right. April twentieth, every year. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's fuck BP every day, mm-hmm. but especially on April 20th. Which I love to connect with Earth Day because BP now, and really in the wake of the deep water spill too, is is kind of the king of greenwashing. They are yeah. the top dogs when it comes to pretending to be doing anything at all about climate. <laughs> Exactly. And I think, you know, it, the problems with BP go way back further than the, the BP oil spill in 2010. So as if the British part of BP doesn't say it all, they were instrumental in colonization. They got their start in 1903. They were instrumental in stripping the oil out of Iran. And, you know, they'll sometimes post these things about like, we've been in Singapore since the early 1900s. And we're like, yeah, honey, that's the problem. You know, (laughs) it's like so when people say that climate change is the result of colonialism, we're not fucking around. It really is. Right. You don't get climate change. You don't get to dig up all that oil without colonizing people and removing people from their homes. So this idea that like oil companies didn't figure out till much later that the that what they were digging up was hurting people mm. is an absolute lie because to dig it up you had to hurt people there's no way not to do it also bp has known about climate change for a minute yeah. as i understand they first publicly acknowledged it in the 90s yes they did they did And I just want to draw attention to one of the most amazing facts about BP. Mary, what was their original name in 1903? (laughs) First Exploitation Company. It's so good. It sounds like we're uh, we're making it up. But in fact, no, that's like they weren't they weren't trying to hide it back then. I mean, seriously. Yeah. They've known about climate change since at least the 90s, possibly earlier. I mean, they were most likely earlier, most likely earlier. They were members of all the trade associations that were talking about it in the 80s, too. So Mm -hmm. hard to believe that they were there, that they were ignorant of it. Then they also popularized the concept of the carbon footprint. So BP was real early with those ads that were like, what's your carbon footprint? What size is your carbon footprint? Ah, the carbon footprint's there. That I don't know. Whatever it is, the whole population of the world make that a very, very big number. How much carbon I produce? Is that it? You mean the effect that my living has on the earth in terms of the products I consume? Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's ridiculous. Yes. Ridiculous. Exactly. 
Exactly. I think a lot of people, myself included, thought that they invented the concept of the carbon footprint, yeah. but they didn't, right? In fact, no. It was a mining company that invented it. But BP definitely put it on the map. You know, it's like uh, whatever the guy is who actually invented the Tesla versus Elon Musk. <laughs> but it was invented by the fossil fuel industry. Mining, actually. It was mining. Like mining coal? Yes. Yes. Okay. Coal and I think gold, too. But anyway, yeah, mostly coal. So still fossil fuel. That's true. It's part of a long tradition of industries trying to put the blame for their problems on individuals. Mm-hmm. Sort of the first example of that is the littering thing with with packaging companies, there's that this like famous ad from the seventies. Oh, the 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 crying Indian. They call it the crying Indian um, ad. The guy in the in the ad is actually Italian, but he's dressed yeah. in like Native American garb, and he's like canoeing through a river with a bunch of trash in it. And then he sort of like looks at the camera, and there's one single tear, and and it's like. Littering yeah. affects us all. And it, the whole thing is like, oh, if, if only you terrible consumers would just pick up your trash, you know, this this problem would go away when, in fact, right. it's paid for by the manufacturing companies, the food and beverage companies, the packaging companies who all don't want us to make them deal with that packaging problem themselves. Exactly. What I find super interesting about BP, too, is that of the oil companies, I'm interested to see if you agree with this, but I, of the oil companies, they seem like they're the ones who care the most about what other people think about them. Totally. You know, like 100%. They, they want to yes. look woke yes. more than anybody else. They really so do. Remember their, remember their Beyond Petroleum campaign? Oh, yeah. Yes, I do. It was, it's, like, it's actually like a case study now of, of like how to not market yourself because it was like such total bullshit and they got really skewered for it and then they kind of rolled right. it back but i feel like they're doing it again i i i feel like they're doing beyond petroleum 2.0 right now they actually made this big move in 2020 to call themselves an integrated energy company not an oil company and oh boy yeah and they also coined the term uh, low carbon gas to talk about natural gas, which I'm like, brilliant. If your problem is methane, you want people thinking about carbon. They're they're doing this huge, huge push right now to kind of, you know, invest wait, wait, wait. a lot. Back that up a little bit. Explain like low carbon gas and, and methane for folks who don't know what's in natural gas. Yes. It, whatever it is, it's not natural. Spoiler. That's right. It's, uh, well, it's a, a fossil fuel. It is methane. And the emissions that come from gas, which are methane emissions, are a potent greenhouse gas. So the big thing with methane is that it's shorter lived than CO2. So, you know, we have a lot of the the warming that's happening now is actually connected to the gas industry, which is also why a lot of folks are kind of focused on reducing emissions from gas quickly because it would it would kind of reduce warming and maybe buy us a little bit of time on climate change. So anyway, that's the greenhouse gas that's most associated with natural, in air quotes, natural gas and BP has taken to rebranding it as low carbon gas to kind of push this idea that 
it's part of a, a suite of climate solutions. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, they're they're doing a they've been doing a big rebrand the last couple of years, very very similar to what they did with Beyond Petroleum. They're also investing in a bunch of renewables, and and genuinely they are investing. But the thing is, like within the oil industry in general, up until a few years ago, none of them were investing more than about uh, 1% of their capital in anything that wasn't fossil fuels. So now BP is investing like 4% and everybody's like, whoa, what a huge deal. But it's like, it's still 4%, you know? Right. Um, And the other, let me guess, where is the other 96% going? In fossil fuels. Yes. Oh, shit, son. Yes. That's wild. Yes. That's wild. So they launched Beyond Petroleum in 2000. Which is so beyond petroleum is basically just taking their name British Petroleum and making it beyond petroleum for Mm -hmm. folks who don't know what BP stands for. By 2010, 10 years after that, their investments in fossil fuels were about 40 billion Mm -hmm. and their investments in renewables were 4 billion. Yeah. And they eventually like walked a lot of that out, right? Yeah. They actually dumped all their um, renewables after after Deepwater, in fact, which was like yeah. A, yeah. one of many PR blunders. They were like <laughs> selling off their solar in the wake of the Deepwater spill. So, yes, not a great move. I just want to underline the fact that when the BP oil spill took place in 2010, BP had publicly acknowledged climate change for 20 years already. That's right. You know, like, I feel like the way we talk about the BP oil spill is that it was just like them cutting corners in oil production, which is true. Yeah. But also the bigger crime is that they knew about climate change while they were digging up that oil. That oil that very much does not want to be dug up. You know, it's kind of like right. if the earth didn't want you, like if the earth was trying to hide something for you, maybe it would put it underneath the ocean. And maybe you should just keep your ass out the bottom of the ocean. I don't know. It, it just seems to. Are you like, yeah. how did you figure? Th- I don't understand. And you would think the BP would have learned this lesson. Like, OK, maybe we shouldn't be digging up shit in the ocean. Uh, no, mm-hmm. no, they didn't. They still dig up shit in the ocean all the time. Just last year, right around the anniversary of the BP oil spill, they opened yet another deep water drilling platform in the Gulf of Mexico. Yep, they sure did. Um, yeah. They have four and soon to be five platforms there, just like Deepwater Horizon. And they have learned nothing. I think they've gotten better at greenwashing. They've learned that. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, they have. And they've learned not to try to change their name. Yeah. On top of the fact that they're still very much in the oil and gas business and they kind of regularly get caught out for you know, not really investing as much as they sort of talk about investing in renewables and transition and all of these things. They also undercount their emissions. Mm. So there's some new research coming out, especially around their uh, projects outside of the global north. So their oil fields in Iraq, for example, um, where they particularly are undercounting emissions and in a lot of cases are not even claiming those emissions at all. What they do is like they go into these countries, they form a joint par- uh, joint partnership with a local oil company there or with the state-owned mm-hmm. oil company. And then they write all those emissions off as that company's emissions and nothing to do with BP. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> Fucking genius. <laughs> Great. 
Amazing. So I'm yeah. going to figure out a way to do that with my student loans. Just let me think about it for a minute. I'll come up with something. Keep going, though. Yes. So, you know, then that kind of that brings us to uh, BP's longtime involvement in Russia. Up until like real, like real recently, they were still bragging on their website about being the oil company most invested in Russia, (laughs) which, which are you serious? Yeah. Which became embarrassing for them when Putin invaded Ukraine. Yeah. Wait, you would think it would have been embarrassing when he invaded Crimea or when Russia interfered in the election. Nope. Like, no, there's that shit didn't start happening <laughs> with Ukraine. Like, no, it, this wasn't sudden. I think that they were proud because they were like, we did better than Exxon here. <laughs> you know? Oh, it was about sticking it to Exxon. Sticking it to Exxon. Yes. So, yes. I, yeah. I also read that the so their partnership in Russia, this very big, you know, oil partnership or whatever, yeah. this oligarchy, they didn't BP didn't count the emissions from that partnership as part of their own emissions. Right. And so they like they did this thing that I'm talking about where they're like, you know, oh, those are Rosneft's emissions, not ours. Wow. Wow. So, you know, they they made this big announcement in in March about how they were pulling out of this partnership and selling off their shares of of Rosneft and all of this stuff. And at, at first, I think a lot of climate people were like, wow, this is great news. But, you know, the reality is it's not like it's not like Rosneft was like, OK, we're going to produce 20 percent less fossil fuels, you know, <laughs> Um, right. Or or like BP is like, we're not going to invest that money we took out in other fossil. You know, they're just going to move it to another fossil fuel project. It's not like they're taking out that money and putting it into renewables. Mm. Um, mm-hmm. So, you know, how how great that really is and how much, you know, applause they deserve for it, I think it, um, it needs to needs to be like tempered by the fact that this doesn't actually do anything if if your concern right. is is emissions and climate change. So, yeah. Right. Green assault. Yeah. So so if you're, you know, watching MSNBC with your parents and you see a commercial for BP that makes them seem like they're an algae company, mm-hmm. it's bullshit. That's bullshit. Yes. It is. It is. Okay, I want to play you a clip from BP's CEO, Bernard Looney. This is when he was rolling out their new, like, we're green now thing to employees. And he was like, but wait, don't worry. We're still very much in the oil business. (laughs) It's also the reality that the world's going to need oil and gas for decades to come. And we're probably going to be in oil and gas for decades to come. Because how else is that $8 billion dividend going to get served? Fuck your dividends, dude. Fuck your dividends. It's true. Okay, even though it is fuck BP day, we're going to talk about some of the other big oil companies oh, that we're mad at course. today too, right? Okay. Yeah, BP <laughs> didn't get here by itself. That's right. That's right. <laughs> we're just starting there. <laughs> That's right. And of course, BP is not the only bad oil company, even though it is fuck BP day today. <laughs> <laughs> question is there a good oil company because i good the I'm good question no. no the answer to that is no so we're going to talk about all the other ones too right after this break
Okay, Mary. I think mm. Shell might be my oil bay. <laughs> I think they might oh, be. Okay. I think they might be. I've come around. Oh, that makes sense for you. Yeah, I feel that like. makes sense for you because they have so many court cases. They have so many court cases. If BP is the oil company that like cares the most about what, what people think of them, I think Shell is the one that genuinely believes the bullshit that it's spreading. <laughs> like, I really think. Yes, oh, I think. Oh, shit. That makes sense. It is. It's, it's crazy. So, uh, like, just to, to give you an example, they were in this big court case uh, that was decided last year where uh, the Dutch courts said to them, you know what, actually, because of the commitments that the Netherlands has made to curb emissions and because of the commitments that you shall have publicly made, we are looking at your operations all over the world, and we really think that actually you need to cut emissions by 45% in the next 10 years. And Shell immediately appealed that decision, of course, but also went out and started mm -hmm. saying, we're already doing that. This court case is not mm -hmm. even necessary because we're already doing it. So... Again, like BP, Shell has known about climate change for a very long time. There was a great investigation by the Dutch paper, The Correspondent, a few years back, uh, very similar to the Exxon New investigation that happened in the U.S., where all these internal documents came out that showed exactly what Shell knew about climate change and when. They made a film about climate change in 1991 called Climate of Concern, which warned Global warming is not yet certain, but many think that to wait for final proof would be irresponsible. Action now is mm. seen as the only safe insurance. 1991. That's uh, 30 years plus ago, for those of you who can't do math as quickly as I can. <laughs> like me. Like me. Okay, just drag me. Just drag me. All right? I can't calculate time zones. I'll go ahead and admit it. But also, it, like... What kind of world do you think we would be in right now if we had taken, if they had taken the right actions in 1991? Yeah, it's really crazy because then just a few years after that, they released this report. So Shell actually was one of the first companies in the world to hire futurists. They actually kind of pioneered the whole thing of futurism and, and corporations having that? these people, yeah, on staff who would be kind of, who could kind of game out like, here are all of the potential things that might happen in the next 20 to 30 years. Here's how they would impact our industry. Here's how we should maybe think about preparing for these things. Um, so they, they would put out these reports every couple of years around kind of future risk scenarios for Shell. And this one that came out in 1998 totally predicts the climate movement that's happening now. It's like, there will be these big storms that will that will like kick off um, action and young people in particular mm -hmm. will feel betrayed and there will be class action lawsuits against the oil companies for not acting even though they had the information mm -hmm. to all of that stuff. So even um, not only were they predicting climate change, but they were predicting like what would happen if they didn't act on climate change completely right. accurately. <laughs> you know? Right, right, right. Yeah. How many of them were women? Oh, good question. I don't know. I I found one guy that I harass every couple of weeks to talk to me. He still hasn't yet, but I'm not going <laughs> to give up. <laughs> In 1991, 
I feel like that might have been the year I graduated kindergarten. Oh, my God. Yikes. And these people... Well, I I don't say that to say, like, I'm not that young. I'm pushing 40. Yeah. So, like... It's just I'm thinking about how they frame us for like, what's your carbon footprint? And it's like, this is what you were doing when I was five. Well, and at that time, too, like in the 90s, I think, especially the early 90s, they really had a particular knowledge of this long before kind of most other people did, you know, because they like to their big argument right now is like, well, everybody knew like the government. And it's true. The government was doing some research on this stuff around the same time that the oil companies were in the 70s and 80s. Definitely there were some environmental activists who knew what was up as of the early 90s for sure. But like the fact that they were kind of gaming this out in such detail at that point, it's yeah. like, yeah, okay, everyone maybe knew a little bit, but you guys knew a lot. And, and you, you had the power to do something about it. That's right. But instead, what what were they doing in the 90s, Mary? What else were they doing? I well, they were killing folks in Nigeria. That's right. That's right. Yes, they were. They were they were killing activists <laughs> in Nigeria to get at their oil. So right. Yeah. So that was in 1995. Mm-hmm. Um, kind of not cool. Kind of not cool. Uh, decidedly not cool, right? So like this idea that oil companies just like sort of made an oopsie and made climate change. Like I was saying earlier, they killed people to get here. That's right. That's right. So the this is the story of the Ogoni Nine. They were a group of people who organized peaceful protests against pollution and oil leaks in the Niger Delta that were being caused by just, I mean, ridiculous behavior from the oil companies. This is very common when they go operate in countries that don't have necessarily like very stringent environmental regulations. I mean, the fucking wheels come off. They just like (laughs) let it rip. And uh, there were, you know, uh, there was a growing sentiment in Nigeria that they, you know, these companies were not taking care of the, the public resources that they were impacting communities there in a really negative way, that it wasn't worth whatever economic development they were supposedly bringing to the country. And they were starting to really gain some traction. And then this group of of nine protesters were brutally murdered by security forces Mm -hmm. that were later shown to be directly connected with Shell. So I mean, ever since then, there's been multiple attempts to try to hold Shell accountable for their role in this. The most recent one was a case that the widows of the Ogoni Nine brought, and they just lost their case recently. So still, Mm -hmm. there's been no accountability for for those murders. And it comes up, you know... To the credit of many environmental activists, every time Shell tries to, like, say shit about Africa on social media, immediately people are like, oh, really? (laughs) Let's talk about Nigeria. Those are just the the murders we know about. All of these companies were instrumental in the Iraq war. That's right. And several other subsequent wars. And so there's blood all over all of their hands. And in 1995, they absolutely knew about climate change. That's right. They did. We know that because they wrote about it. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Kind of left a paper trail. They left a big paper trail. Yeah. 
they're also in the Gulf of Mexico, too, right? Yes, they are. Yes, they are. Are they the biggest one out there? They are. BP? They are, actually. Yeah, they've actually edged BP out in the Gulf of Mexico. They have the largest offshore oil platform, and they are launching new ones just like BP is. My favorite that you found recently that I was like, they did not call it that, is called Power Nap. Power Nap. Yeah. Who had, like whose little kid came up with that? I don't know. It's so weird. I don't know. It's so weird. Yeah. But in in part to make sure that they have a much better reputation than BP in New Orleans and Louisiana in general, uh, Shell now sponsors Jazz Fest every year in New Orleans. Yeah, um, actually, a lot of the oil companies sponsor a lot of different things around yeah. New Orleans, and 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 they do this in a lot of other places too, where they have a really big presence. Mm-hmm. So they try to buy this social license by sponsoring things that people like, like different festivals and museums and yeah. exhibits and and like sort of social good things. And it it, it kind of reminds you so much of a company town. Or a plantation store in a lot of ways, right? So, like, Mm -hmm. I recently went to visit uh, the Whitney Plantation in Louisiana, which if if you're ever in Louisiana, I highly recommend going and not just to support them, but also you will learn a ton. It's the only plantation that's open and the stories are told from the perspectives of the enslaved. Um, And so the plantation is along the Mississippi River as a lot of plantations were because it was easy for transportation. They could use the water for irrigation, et cetera, et cetera. Especially, you know, the sugar plantations. And when you're driving toward it, you see huge amounts of fossil fuel infrastructure. Mm -hmm. And it's like it just replaced, one just replaced the other. Yeah. You know, because they need to be along the river too for the same sort of, for being close to the water. And Mm -hmm. also, of course, they want to fuck up the Mississippi River for some reason. These companies will buy up these places or buy up buy their way into these spaces where they get to seem like they're they're, you know, supporting culture like music and art Um, and like they're supporting different causes like, you know, anti-racism or gender equality or trans rights or something like that. Mm -hmm. They will try to buy that kind of license while also literally killing everyone, but especially killing black and brown people all over the world, including here in Louisiana. Mm -hmm. And so, folks, if you are working in one of those spaces in like education or prison abolition or whatever, take, take some care with the speaking invitations you accept. Yes. You know, like if your event is sponsored by Shell, maybe it's a no. Mm-hmm. That's right. Yeah. Yeah, because they they do this the whole thing with the the social license to operate is not it's it's like they want the public to think of them as a good actor. They want people to think of them as like a positive member of the community, all of those things. But they also want various cultural institutions to be financially dependent on them so that there will be fewer people in a position to criticize them. So you see that in like the education funding in New Orleans. I was talking to someone who um, is trying to like start an arts organization in New Orleans the other day. And she was like, I I swear to God, I have applied to like 10 different funders. And every single time I find out that the money traces back to an oil company. So, mm. you know, it's it's very, very insidious in that way. And I yeah. think, oh, the I just found this really interesting thing the other day that in the 90s, when the oil companies were like 
they were practically the sole funder of of public television in the 90s. There was like a, a joke that PBS was actually the petroleum broadcasting service. But they also <laughs> became the largest funder of arts and culture in the 90s. Combined, they were spending so much to fund like museums and art exhibits and all of these things that they were the number one funder. So, you know, mm-hmm. they don't fund things just because they like them. You know, there's they're very right. on the record, actually, about only funding things that, that ultimately benefit the bottom line. So, you know, anytime you see that, you have to think about, OK, well, how does this help protect right. their fossil fuel interests or their exactly. um, ability to kind of continue operating the way they, they always have. They don't do anything out of the goodness of their heart because they don't have hearts. Because they're not people. I mean, this is yeah, actually, exactly. this is a thing too. So back in the 70s, it was actually Mobile Oil that came up with the whole idea of corporations as people imbued with, you know, opinions and values and morals and ethics and all these things, right? And they they have done such a good job of leveraging that where I still hear I hear people who very much believe that we need to act on climate who will say things like but don't you think that they deserve a seat at the table and don't you <laughs> think that they need to be, you know, we need to include them and nobody right. nobody responds well to, to, you know, shame and anger and all these things. In fact, this came up actually just earlier this year in the lead up to the, the international climate conversation in Glasgow. Um, right before it, Ted had an event where they invited, mm-hmm. you know, it was supposed to be their big climate event and they had all of these people coming, activists and experts and whatever. And they invited Shell's CEO. And a bunch of Scottish activists got really mad about this because they were in the process Mm -hmm. of trying to, you know, stop various oil projects in Scotland. And they were like, you know, what message does this send in the lead up to this big climate negotiation that you're sort of pandering to an oil company CEO? So they invited one of the women from that group to join this panel. And she absolutely gave it to Shell CEO, Ben Van Buren. It was a beautiful moment. It was really beautiful. Uh, We can, we'll play a little bit of that clip here because it's, it's fun. So Mr. Van Buren, I just want to start by saying that you should be absolutely ashamed of yourself for the devastation, (laughs) for the devastation that you have caused to communities all over the world. Already, you are responsible for so much death and suffering. I'm not even going to appeal to you to change, because I know that that would be a wasted opportunity. What I do want to say is that every single day that you fail to stop making evil decisions is a day that the death toll of the climate crisis rises. You are one of the most responsible people for this crisis in the world, and in my view, that makes you one of the most evil people in the world. In the aftermath of that, there was actually a huge amount of initial backlash against her for being mean Mm -hmm. to an oil company. And it was like, okay, look, Uh uh, maybe Ben Van Buren had a bad day. Like, no one likes to get shouted at on a stage. But, like, he's the CEO of Shell. You don't get to be that powerful and that sensitive at the same fucking time. That's right. Pick one. Pick a struggle. That's right. Okay, so if you're going to have the power to burn the whole world, we're going to have the power to embarrass you in public. It's the fucking least we can do. 
speaking of which, one of my favorite things about Shell is like they were one of the first green trolling moments that actually got attention paid to it in the press. So like right after the 2020 election or no, right before the 2020 election, they posted some poll that was like, what are you going to do to solve climate change? And it wasn't the time. All right. Like (laughs) America wasn't in the fucking mood that day. (laughs) They got trolled to hell and back. Everybody kind of like piled onto it and they actually had to respond to the negative feedback that they got. So let's talk about another one of your faves, especially they're based in California, right? They sure are. And that is Chevron. (laughs) (laughs) Why did you say it like that? Because I've been doing all this reporting on Chevron in Ecuador. And every time I interview someone, they're like, you know, it's all in Spanish. And then. And then they'll be like, and Chevron. And I'm like, oh, yes. Anyway, so yes, Chevron in Richmond, California. God, they're just a real close second to Shell. <laughs> you know? mm-hmm. they're, they are terrible. They, where do you even begin with Chevron? Uh, I think actually like they're a really good example, similar to to BP, of, of uh, just like the horrendous environmental justice record of these companies you know they they chevron in particular like to like to like throw up a black square and say black lives matter but then they have been you know poisoning the people of richmond for decades and they they actually are so embedded in that town that they started a newspaper there. When all the actual papers shut down, Chevron swooped in and started their own paper. Oh fuck. Really? It's still going. And um and they the actually the main purpose of that paper was to to kind of try to sway public opinion in favor of Chevron expanding their refinery there. And the other thing that they did to try to, like, sweeten the deal on that was they offered the city to give a bunch of money towards various other services. So as part of that deal, the city went for it. They did the expansion and Chevron put in, like, close to $10 million to the Richmond Police Department. Oh, Um, right. Yeah. Right, right, right. I remember you cracked that story. Yeah. So it's actually, like... One of the most overfunded police departments in the country, it has a police force that is, like, much larger than any other town's its size. Um, And so, Mm -hmm. you know, I can't help but think of that every time I see Chevron be like, Black Lives Matter, (laughs) you know? Yeah. I remember when you broke that story. You broke that story in our newsletter. Because Chevron was tweeting all this Black Lives Matter stuff, and you were like, wait a minute, I know y'all are up to fucking something. Yeah, because <laughs> I know I, you are. I remember seeing the proposals for that refinery expansion, and I remember right. them being like, we're going to boost the police force. So, mm-hmm. yeah. Anyway, that's all documented. Yeah. yeah. And a lot of the fossil fuel companies give money to police forces. They do. They fund a lot of 
police around the world, actually, in various other countries, too. So definitely not an anti-police industry. <laughs> you know? Um, the other thing that I find really interesting about Chevron is that because they are based in the Bay Area, they feel compelled to... Um, talk not only to the public about all of their amazing climate activities, but they're, um, they have to spend a lot of time and money trying to convince their employees that they're doing good things in the world. So I was leaked this brochure last year, maybe a year before, that they prepared for their employees about like how to basically how to deal with it when people like give you grief for working for an oil company because <laughs> their employees were like, oh. I can't tell people where I work because like everyone hates us. <laughs> you know? uh, can I guess some of the things that might be in it? Yes, please. Uh, let me guess. They're asking people to respond to, to that type of question with things like, well, don't you drive a car? Yep. That's in there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Wait, really? Yep. Classic. And their big one, and this is this is one that all the oil companies love, is, you know, we're helping to solve poverty in uh, the global south. Oh, right. Yeah. Because we yeah. are bringing energy to the world. And, and then they, they have a bunch of stats on, like, their climate commitments. And they – oh – this is another thing that they like to bring up a lot is like is basically like, well, we're a really responsible oil company. So at least when we're drilling for oil, like we take all the proper environmental precautions, which I'm like, hi, meet Ecuador. Um, <laughs> Talk to me about Ecuador, Amy. Yeah. So um, Chevron was embroiled in a lawsuit in Ecuador for I don't know, decades. They actually inherited this lawsuit. So um, Texaco was sued by a group of people in Ecuador for drilling in the Amazon in this very irresponsible way where they would just create these giant pits of oil and water mixed together and then just leave them. So there's what could go wrong. I know it's insane. Like there's all of these open pits all over the Ecuadorian Amazon that are filled with oil. And then, of course, like they don't they were unlined. So that seeps into the ground. It seeps into the groundwater. It gets into the river. People, indigenous communities that had lived for years, you know, like in a very kind of simple subsistence way, fishing from the river, getting water from the river, living by the river, whatever, couldn't do that anymore. So you had this massive migration of people into cities, completely destroyed communities, destroyed like generational knowledge and culture being passed down, like just really. (sighs) Back up, back up. So this is like instead of an oil spill, it's an oil infusion. Yes, yes. Exactly. Exactly. You know, they built pipelines that broke all the time. All kinds of stuff. Real shoddy operation over here, Chevron. (laughs) Real shoddy. So, yeah, they had all these pits and things. And, you know, this was Texaco originally. They were working with the Ecuadorian oil company Petro Ecuador. And a lot of times both Texaco and then Chevron would say, oh, that wasn't us. That was Petro Ecuador. But... You know, they trained all of the Petro-Ecuador people. And the way that those, um, like, that kind of concession worked in Ecuador was, like, Texaco ran it. So they were the ones that were kind of dictating everything over the years. And then, yes, 
Petro-Ecuador, you know, made money off of it and took over more and more of it over the years. But, you know, so um, this lawsuit centered around a lot of cleanup that needed to happen in the Amazon. Chevron inherits this case from Texaco. They ask for it to be moved to Ecuador. And as part of that, they promise whatever the Ecuadorian courts say, we will abide by. So this judge in New York says, "Okay, fine, take the case to Ecuador. (laughs) So they go to Ecuador and about like five or six years into it, there's a major change in the government of Ecuador and a socialist gets elected who is very pro-indigenous rights and and makes it known that he, you know, thinks it's great that people are suing Chevron and he thinks that Chevron should pay to clean up all of this stuff. And the math just totally switches for Chevron and they start going, oh, the Ecuadorian courts are corrupt. Um, you know, so they end up losing that case in Ecuador. They're slapped with the, initially an eighteen billion dollar fine. They get it dropped down to nine billion. They appeal through all of the courts in Ecuador. The constitutional court there, which is equivalent to the Supreme Court here, says no. Like you, like there's enough documentation. You owe this money, and so as that's all going on, Chevron brings a RICO case against the uh, plaintiffs in Ecuador and their attorneys in New York. So they say, these attorneys are running a con. They have bribed judges, they have bribed uh, officials, and they have totally set up this case to fleece us in Ecuador. And it's not fair. And we shouldn't be required to pay this settlement. And the New York judge agrees. He sides with Chevron. And so you end up with this very bizarre situation where a a U.S. court totally um, circumvents the sovereignty of the courts in Ecuador and says, you know, they don't have to pay. Then as time goes on, like they're still trying to collect this settlement in other places. And Chevron starts to really target the American lawyer who helped the Ecuadorians to bring this case. Um, so this is a guy named Donziger. Stephen Donziger. Yes, who's been right. in the media a lot more recently. I mean, they really he's not like, you know, he, he's not like the perfect victim, I would say, you know, like he's got some quirks, yeah, Stephen Donziger. That's fine. But I mean, they absolutely harassed him. You know, like they they yeah. went after his law license. They got a lien on his house. So they basically said, you, Stephen Donziger, owe us the legal fees for this RICO case. And and right. he and he was like, I don't have any money. And they were like, you have a house, don't you? So well, they they basically own his house now. They, and they put him on house arrest. In the and then they put, they put him on house arrest. Yes. 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 God damn it. It's it's crazy. It's really crazy. It is crazy. I, I have found it kind of frustrating how the media narrative around this seems to center Donziger and not the people of Ecuador. Mm-hmm. Which was very intentional. Chevron, that was a strategy. I have all of the strategy documents on this. It's crazy. They had this really? strategy that they called demonized Donziger. And they were like, let's make this about Donziger. And it was genius because he's like, you know, kind of a self-important Harvard Law guy. He's like a 6'4 yeah. white guy. And every time he's and, – and he actually does really try to not make it, you know, centered on him. But he is like a little bit of a narcissist, you know, too. So I think they picked their target 
knowing exactly what they were doing and very much trying to shift mm. attention away from, you know, indigenous people in the Amazon, like small farmers that in the Amazon, these like communities that were totally upended and make it just about him. And it worked. I mean, yeah, the narrative is still very much about him. And meanwhile, these friggin' oil pits are still there in Ecuador. And then at the same time, this is the same Chevron that tweeted in defense of democracy after the January 6th insurrection. Yes. Yes. So they <laughs> they also like their big their big argument in all of their um, in all of their cases right now. So they're being sued in 24 different cases in the U.S. for, you know, for basically lying about climate change. These are the there's a big batch of these. They're called climate liability cases. And a bunch of cities and states and counties are suing the oil companies, basically saying, look, because of your actions to stop uh, policy on climate, we're now facing much higher costs for climate adaptation, and you guys should pay some of those costs. Mm-hmm. That's that's the argument that's being made. Very Chevron's logical. attorney, yeah, very logical. Chevron's attorney is a First Amendment attorney. His name's Ted Boutros. He works for the same law firm that brought that RICO case against the Ecuadorian people. And he is famous for for being a First Amendment attorney. He is CNN's First Amendment attorney. He's like the guy that um, defended CNN's right to be in the, the briefing room with President Trump. He also defended Mary Trump when she was trying to get her book out about Donald Trump and Trump was trying to stop it. Mm-hmm. He... Is he gives advice to the New York Times? He advises ProPublica. He advises Reveal. Mm-hmm. Like any legit journalism outfit you can think of, Ted Brutros is probably giving them some some free First Amendment advice. But he's also Chevron's attorney, and he's become kind of the spokesperson for all of the oil companies in these cases. And they're very much making a free speech argument, saying, you know, we have the right to talk about climate however we want. And, you know, we just don't agree on what kind of action should be taken. Therefore, our speech is political speech, not commercial speech. And that means it's protected by the First Amendment. So they're very, like, involved in, in sort of crafting that defense for the for the industry. And, yeah, it's I mean, it's amazing. Like, this guy is getting awards from every you know, journalism outfit. Meanwhile, he's also helping Chevron basically build the case that, like, lying about climate is protected speech. Mm -hmm. And that also, you know, makes me think of the another point is that these fossil fuel companies, Chevron included, will give money to media outlets. Oh, yeah. Big time. Oh, I mean, Yeah. Yeah. Chevron sponsors, like, everything Politico does on energy. Mm-hmm. I mean, <laughs> you know? <laughs> and, yeah. Um, yeah. Exxon hires the New York Times brand studio to make ads for it. So does Shell. The American Petroleum Institute hires the Washington Post brand studio to make ads for them. I mean, they're all up in media's junk. Right. Which, right. I'm sorry, has to make it... T- slightly tougher to be critical of those companies. <laughs> you know? I mean, I think we've seen the evidence of that, right? Yeah. Like 
the media still treats the fossil fuel industry as a status quo in the exact same way that they treat the police narrative as a status quo. And it's a problem. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Yep. And now Chevron is um, taking it one step further and actually starting its own newsroom. So they they were they were recently posting jobs for business writer, oil and energy, um, and also looking for an editor in chief and a creative director to start its own internal Chevron newsroom. I'm applying. <laughs> I decided in this moment that I'm going to apply. Oh, man. I just, I don't want the job, clearly, but I want the yeah. interview. Oh, yeah. I know. I was like, can I, can I use my, I have like a secret name that I use. What is only it? Only for things like that. I'm not going to tell. It's secret, Mary. <laughs> secret. I was going to, and I was like, oh, maybe I should apply with my secret name to the Chevron <laughs> Newsroom job just to see. Uh, yeah. I'm going to do it with anyway. my real name. Yeah, do it with your real name. That'd be hilarious. Let's see what happens. <laughs> real name, fake resume. Let's see. <laughs> <laughs> yes. All right, let's get to my oil bay number two, Exxon. <laughs> Reason Exxon is my oil bay is because they blocked me on Twitter, and that is my oh, love language. That's right. <laughs> that's right. I forgot. Yes. My love so language. Funny. I didn't even. I I didn't even really like go there yet, Exxon. I had so much more hate to give you, and I feel like we only got started. So, Exxon, before the BP oil spill in 2010, Exxon held the 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 mantle for the biggest oil spill in U.S. history in 1989 with the Exxon Valdez oil spill, way up. And Alaska, which is an incredibly difficult place to clean up an oil spill. And you can guess they didn't do a super great job, did they, Amy? <laughs> no, it's actually like a case study for like PR people that are doing, you know, like a, a mass communications degree or trying to learn how to do crisis PR stuff. It's like, here's how not to handle a crisis. Like everything they did was bad. The CEO yeah. didn't like go there until, you know, pretty late. And then when he did, he was kind of like, whatever, it's not that bad. And like... <laughs> So I mean, the bad. BP CEO so was kind of like that in 2010, actually. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I don't think any people died in this case, but a lot of people got hurt with their livelihoods and like their long term health and lots of animals and ecosystems were hurt, which, of course, hurts people because we're part of the ecosystem. So it was bad. It was it was super bad. If you are active in climate circles in any way, you're probably aware of the phrase Exxon knew. Amy, what did Exxon know? And when did they know it? Yeah, Exxon <laughs> knew, no, uh, refers to this big expose that came out in 2015 where a bunch of journalists at Inside Climate News and the LA Times and Columbia Journalism School all dug into a bunch of documents that were just hiding out in Exxon's corporate archive at University of Texas, Austin. Gotta that love showed, a trail. I know, I'm, it's amazing. It's yeah. amazing. It was all these amazing memos from the late 70s all the way through the 80s, early 90s, where scientists who worked for Exxon were telling the executives, hey, this uh, global warming thing seems pretty bad <laughs> and um, might really impact our business because uh, it seems pretty certain that it's fossil fuel combustion that's causing this. And, this you is know, the they 70s, start to- you say? 
the late 70s is like the first of them, yes. And they started yeah. to warn them more and more and more. And then and then you kind of start to see Exxon go from funding research on this to being like, let's just tell everyone this is like total bullshit. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, Exxon. Yeah. <laughs> That's Exxon for you. Mm-hmm. The other thing to know about Exxon is Exxon don't give a fuck. So they really don't give a in fuck. Twenty, yeah, they yeah. don't. That's their so personality. Twenty, yeah, it is. <laughs> yeah. Like they, they really. Exxon is the fuck boy of the fossil fuel company. A hundred percent. Yes. <laughs> yes. As recently as twenty twenty, Exxon CEO Darren Woods said that BP and Shell were engaging in a beauty match when they set net zero goals. <laughs> now, to be fair, he's kind of right. He's kind of right. <laughs> kind of right. You know, yeah. net zero is bullshit. For all sorts of reasons, but also like, homie, like you're not even going to try to put a bow on it, like a little mascara, something like you're just not going to try. No, he very. I mean, he very much and Exxon very much is like, fuck you, we're Exxon. That's their <laughs> that's their jam, um, which I almost respect more than like all of the bullshit. It certainly seems to play well with Republicans in Congress. They love to like congratulate Darren Woods for for not feeling like he has to pretend that they're doing shit on climate. <laughs> <You know? sighs> I mean, yeah. it, I do appreciate the honesty. Unblock me on Twitter, Exxon. Let's talk about it. They also, they have a climate plan, right? Like all of these companies have a climate plan, but right. Exxon's is especially like, we're just not even going to try. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Their climate plan is to like work really hard to, to try not to get sued anymore. And they actually, like, they do some crazy shit in the courtroom, right? They do. They do some crazy shit. So they are also making this free speech argument. And they are particularly using a bunch of weirdo laws in Texas to actually try to countersue people. So they have now sued, like, a bunch of attorneys. Naomi Oreskes, who's, like, an expert that gets called in a lot of these cases. The attorney general of Massachusetts, Mara Healy. Uh, like an attorney in the Bahamas. I mean, they've just anyone who has tried to sue them, they have countersued. And the charge is basically that in suing them, people are trying to infringe on their free speech rights. Interesting. It's basically the cancel culture argument. Just hysterical, again, coming from the company that blocked me on Twitter. I know. I know. And they, they have a real friend in both Ken Paxton and Greg Abbott in Texas. Those guys are, you know, are constantly falling all over themselves to write briefs on behalf of Exxon, to pass laws that will be beneficial to Exxon. Um, They have both come out against these climate liability suits. They show up and write briefs in every single climate liability suit saying that, you know, this is overreach and that it's infringing on on the oil industry's rights and that, you know that these cases are trying to get around federal law and all kinds of things, all kinds of things. Last thing, I remember last summer there was this tape that went viral um, of Exxon lobbyists basically admitting that they manipulate the public. I know you love that. (laughs) It was so good. That was actually, that was great because it really, it actually did prompt quite a bit of, of action from Congress. You know, it, it got them going on the, this climate disinformation investigation. It it actually, like, put 
put Exxon and the rest of the industry on the back foot for a minute. You know, they they recovered. But it was hilarious. Like, Darren Woods (laughs) tried to be like, that guy never really worked for us. And it was like, okay, he was a VP and he worked there for 20 years, you know. Um. Yeah. (laughs) Like, we have the internet, dude. It's on LinkedIn. (laughs) (laughs) What are you talking about? Well, so like in the video, they were boasting about funding climate denial groups and admitting that they're carbon like because they were all like raw, raw carbon tax. But that was they were doing that just in name only because they knew that they had already spent decades poisoning the whale against a carbon tax and it wouldn't really work. So they weren't really supporting climate advocacy. And they were boasting about these super close relationships with politicians, including everybody's favorite coal baron, Joe Manchin. Yeah, it was it was um, just sort of confirmed like everything that we suspect about Exxon, you know. And the way that they operate. So yeah, it was it was kind of amazing. Hot Take is brought to you by Public Goods, the one-stop shop for sustainable, high-quality, everyday essentials made from clean ingredients at an affordable price. Everything from coffee to toilet paper and shampoo to pet food. Public Goods is your new everything store, thoughtfully designed for the conscious consumer. Yeah, I actually really like public goods. I especially like it because, again, in my household, full of both men and young, small people, (laughs) small germy people who are very dirty and have to wash their hands all the time. I have like I have so many hand soaps everywhere and I hate having to rebuy those bottles Mm -hmm. like every couple of weeks. That's how often it's like every couple of weeks. So I like that I can just like refill it with the soap from public goods. It's great. Right. Actually makes me like cleaning. (laughs) Yes, exactly. We've worked out an awesome deal with public goods. You'll get $15 off, $15 off your first public goods order with no minimum purchase. That's right. They're so confident that you will absolutely love these products and come back again and again that they're giving you $15 to spend on your first purchase. So you have nothing to lose. Just go to publicgoods.com slash hot, H-O-T, or use the code hot at checkout. That is P-U-B-L-I-C-G-O-O-D-S dot com forward slash hot to receive $15 off your first order. I want to end on one very beautiful moment of accountability in 2021 when Exxon shareholders got super pissed and kicked out two members of the board and replaced them with climate activists. Yes. That was That was a fun day. Really something. Yeah. Yeah, that was pretty incredible and I I think we're going to see more of that specifically mm-hmm. targeting Exxon. There's a lot of shareholder activism that's kind of targeting those guys. So Yeah. That should be pretty interesting. The other thing that we're going to see more of is Exxon in court, not just because of their nonsense, but because just a lot of people are taking them to court. They are they just tried their last big attempt to get rid of this big um, fraud case against them in Massachusetts. So we will see. What the courts come back with there, they have exhausted all of their other efforts to get that case thrown out. This is a case that Mara Healy brought a couple years ago against Exxon only for defrauding both consumers and shareholders. 
They have been gathering evidence for years. Exxon has tried absolutely everything they can to get out of any kind of discovery because that would mean, you know, access to more documents, executives having to sit for depositions, all kinds of stuff like that. So anyway, that'll be interesting. And part of the reason that they in particular are in even more lawsuits than everybody else is their role in all of the big industry trade groups. So you have the American Petroleum Institute. You have this thing called IPICA. I can't even remember what it stands for. And they're one of those organizations that like ditched their real name in favor of their acronym a long time ago. But it's basically this environmental organization that was created by the oil companies to deal with environmental issues. I mean, they they say that it's like so that they can come together and like do all these amazing things to be more environmentally responsible. But basically, it exists to try to coordinate efforts to stop environmental regulation. Exxon is like very, very influential there. And then you have the AFPM, which is the American... Is American fuel and petrochemical manufacturers. So that's like the pipeline guys, the refineries, the petrochemical facilities, and all the oil companies are involved in that too, as are the Koch brothers, because their business is mostly in refineries. So those three entities are really responsible for strategizing most of the industry opposition against climate policy. Um, And you see them turn up all over the place. They are drafting sample legislation. They are, Mm -hmm. you know, sending letters to the White House. I mean, the American Petroleum Institute, API, they were contacting the White House in January, way before Russia actually invaded Ukraine, to say, Mm -hmm. hey, guys, if Russia invades Ukraine, can you please make the sanctions weak? So, it's like, how do you know that? I know. I know. I mean, they're always ready. I mean, I'm sure that they have a team of futurists working on this stuff, too, because they seem to have a campaign and a strategy ready to go for any possible world event. COVID. Right. They I were right on so it. Creepy. They were on the COVID mm. thing so fast in like... February, they were asking for things. I mean, with I guess with COVID, that makes like that feels a little less creepy. With Ukraine, it feels super creepy. It's kind of like your neighbor coming by and saying like, hey, if you ever leave your door unlocked at night again, you know, just let me know. (laughs) Wait, what? (laughs) I know. (laughs) It's deeply creepy. It is very creepy. But that's the thing. Like they have they have a lot of power. And, right. And that's kind of that sort of like brings us back to the the overall point of this episode, which is, you know, if you're going to celebrate Earth Day and you're going to spend one day a year or one week a year or whatever it is thinking about environmental and climate stuff, you know, focus on these guys as the yeah. real orchestrators of a lot of this stuff. And yes, I understand that right. we all use gas and we all consume things that include fossil fuels and all of those things. And yes, there are things that we can do individually to curb that. However, these companies are not just players within a system. They are very much architects of that system. And the idea that they have equal responsibility to us or that we have equal accountability to them is is just not true. 
exactly. Climate change is a crime against humanity, and these are the criminals. And this is just the starting list. There's a whole lot of other folks involved here. There's a lot of accomplices. And there are other oil companies like Total. Ain't nobody forgot about you. ConocoPhillips. There's plenty of others, too. It's just Mm -hmm. these are the four Billy Goats that we're focusing on. That's right. right. On this episode. But the need to hold these companies accountable is actually a climate solution. You know, I think a lot of people think that when you talk about, you know, how bad the oil companies are and how awful they are, that you're avoiding talking about solutions. But actually, accountability is a solution. Yeah. Right. And that was in the the IPCC, the International Panel on Climate Change, this huge report that came Mm -hmm. out this week. Right. That's right. Yeah, it is a solution. Also, it's, you know, I. We've talked about this a bunch, that the only way that you can really craft effective solutions is if you understand the roots of the problem in the first place. And you can't do that without understanding how this industry operates and how exactly policies have been manipulated. And yes, in the most recent IPCC report, they made it very clear that the number one blocker to acting on climate is vested interests like fossil fuel companies and politics. But really, I mean, they they kind of made it clear that it's like the vested interests that are mucking with the politics, too. So it's not a lack of technology. It's not a lack of knowledge. It's not a lack of, of even, you know, consumer will to act on this thing. It is a few people with outsized power who are blocking our ability to act on this problem. Yes, of course, individuals can do things, particularly those of us who are in like the top 10% globally. There was some really interesting stuff in this report about that, too, and the responsibilities that we have not only to make, you know, our own choices, but to influence systemic change in a way that... May, you know, creates better choices for everyone. But um, make no mistake, uh, we cannot do any of those things if these guys won't get out of the fucking way. Right. And you don't need to be all green everything and be like this perfect environmental saint no. before you can call out Chevron or Shell or Exxon or BP, right? right. Like Or any of these other groups. That's right. You don't need to be perfect. That's right. They need to go the fuck away. Right. That's right. Yeah, because, I mean, we're all, you know, we're all restricted by the options available to us. And for the most part, we are not the ones who decided what those options would be. That is not true of Chevron, Shell, Exxon, or BP. (laughs) Right. Or their trade industry groups. Like, they could have stopped this shit cold before we were born. That's right. And if they wanted to be energy companies, um, they could have done that. So... Yeah, that's it. That's it. Fuck BP Day. Every day. The end. (laughs) Every day. That's right. That's it for this week. Reminder that we are weekly now, so look for us in your pod feeds every Friday. Hot Take is a Crooked Media production. It's produced by Ray Pang and mixed and edited by Jules Bradley. Our music is by Vasilis Fotopoulos. Somali Kodakara is our consulting producer. And our executive producers are Mariani Heckler, Amy Westerbell, and Michael Martinez. 
Special thanks to Sandy Gerard, Ari Schwartz, Kyle Seglin, and Charlotte Landis for production support, and to Amelia Montooth for digital support. You can follow the show on Twitter at, at @realhottake or sign up for our newsletter at hottakepod.com and subscribe to Cricket Media's video channel at youtube.com/crookedmedia. slash